Miss Fox? Need help getting home? No. No, thank you. He did not sell Persian rugs, and his name was not Bertrand. Although he could not remember what his name was, he was sure that this was not it. He walked south through the park, the Volksgarten, he remembered, Garden of the People, toward the spires of the Hofburg Imperial Palace rising above the treetops. The vast square in front of its arc was speckled with tourists and businessmen drifting past the statue of a man on a rising horse. This, too, he knew, the monument to Archduke Charles. He knew Vienna, its geography and its histories. That much was apparent, but this was not his home. Walking its streets gave him a vague sense of agoraphobia, and the German he spoke was strange and from somewhere else. Just past the Archduke, he turned left, entering a tunnel that burrowed through the palace where statues of long-dead royalty looked down from crevices, making him think of old wars on horseback. And for a reason he could not place, those statues filled him with disgust. He emerged on another square and sat in the shadow of a white church beneath a high clock tower, then touched the throbbing sore spot on the back of his head. Underneath, the hair was stiff from dry blood. In his jacket pocket, he found a slip of white paper folded in half with barely legible handwriting. Diana Frankovich, followed by a telephone number. He stared for a while, but could not remember her. There was a telephone booth on the other side of the square, and he briefly considered it, but he felt that he should not call the number, and he was clear-headed enough to follow his muted instincts. Between the church and the gloomy Reifeisenbach, he followed Kohlmacht down to Graben, a pedestrian shopping street choked with outdoor café tables where all Vienna, it seemed, stared at him. He entered a café at random and found a bathroom with three sinks. Beside him, a businessman in a clean suit checked his straight, white teeth in a rusting mirror, then left. He splashed water on himself and stared at his wet face, round but thin, with three moles on his left cheek. He tried to guess his own age somewhere in his forties, perhaps. He felt much older. He removed his jacket and rolled up his sleeves. That was when he noticed the blood smeared down his right forearm. It wasn't his blood. He washed it off. It seemed that at this point he should panic, but he took in each new piece of information as if it were part of a checklist on a clipboard. Don't know my name? Check. Woman's phone number? Check. Don't know age? Check. Someone else's blood on me? Check. He went through his pants and in a back pocket found another slip of paper. Small, one-inch square, a dry-cleaning ticket. 321 Hotel Kaiserin Elizabeth. A phone booth directory told him that the Hotel Kaiserin Elizabeth was not far away, down Graben, then a right at the high-corroded Gothic of St. Stephen's Cathedral. He paused at the Uber Threecott clothing store, but by now the path was coming back to him. Left, just a few doors down, past cigarette and gold cellar storefronts. 
Fiber Gasser 3 The Kaiserin Elizabeth was plain-faced and white, the glass awning held together by an iron frame. A thin bellboy in green stood before the wooden doors, hands clasped behind his back. Go Scott, said the bellboy. He nodded a reply, then went inside. The narrow entry was lined in marble. To the left, an alcove with elevators and stairs. To the right, a reception desk where a woman read a book. She smiled at him as he passed. His instincts kept him shuffling ahead beyond the desk, which was strange. A reasonable course of action would be to approach the desk clerk and ask the simple questions. Do you recognize me, and what's my name? But as with the phone number still in his pocket, he could not bring himself to do what was reasonable. Through double doors he found an empty sitting room where a regal pattern carpet stretched beneath a domed glass ceiling. In a portrait above the cold fireplace, Queen Elizabeth looked as if nothing could amuse her. He settled on one of the padded chairs arranged around polished coffee tables and flipped absently through a copy of the day's courier. He could wait here for hours. But for what? Perhaps nothing. He read that a German writer named Paul had just died. The Americans had begun broadcasting on Radio Free Asia. And in the back, a concerned reader had written in to protest U.S. President Lyndon Johnson's escalation of war in Vietnam. But none of these could compare to his mystery. He folded the newspapers, the double doors open, and the bellboy walked up to him. His loose blonde hair hung low over his bright blue eyes, and his smile seemed completely insincere. Can I help you, sir? I just wanted to get my key. The boy winked. Let me take care of that for you. I appreciate it. He followed the bellboy back into the lobby and watched him approach the desk. Drei, zwei, eins. The woman set her book aside and reached back to the wall of slots. She handed over a key and a weighted ring and an envelope. The bellboy gave him both items, saying of the envelope, This was left for you last night. By whom? The bellboy looked back at the desk clerk. She said, I wasn't here last night. The bellboy shrugged. Would you like me to accompany you, sir? No, thank you. Gruscott, said the bellboy. He took the elevator up three floors without opening the envelope. His patience was a surprise. The natural impulse was to rip it open, but instead he slipped it into his jacket pocket and walked down the hallway to the door marked 321. The room was large and clean, but lived in. He crossed the carpeted floor to an empty suitcase in the corner and found that the wardrobe was filled with clothes. Inside the envelope was a wallet, old, the leather well-worn, with money, shillings and coronas. These pink and pale blue bills began a trickle of associations, and a faded photograph of mountains he knew were the Carpathians. There was no other identification in the wallet, but details were beginning to come to him. This room was familiar in this. He crouched beside the wardrobe and reached beneath. His fingers found it quickly, and he was soon peeling off the tape that attached a maroon passport to the underside of the wardrobe. He opened the passport and found a photograph of himself with his three moles above a name. Sev.
Brano, or Lexi. Even now, with the evidence in front of him, his name was strange. Three words that could not quite fit in his mouth. He was 49 years old. His country? He was an Easterner, and that felt right, but not comfortable. He stepped over and locked his door. A passport, a wallet, and a phone number, which he took out of his pocket and read again. Diana Frankovich. He lifted the phone. It rang seven times before he hung up, and with each muted buzz, another fragment came to him. A party in a large, smoky apartment full of people, him with a drink in his hand, asking a short, wrinkled man, Have you seen Bertrand? The man shakes his head and walks away. A crowd of young people cross-legged on the living room floor around a long-haired man strumming an acoustic guitar, everyone singing in unison, Love, love me do, you know I love you. A drunk woman with striking brown eyes edged in green and black hair pulled behind her ear. Bertrand, she says, I tell him go to hell. Da, he is boring. Awkward dancing, him with the brown-eyed one who whispers into his ear, Branosev, I am in the... Again with her, but the air is fresh, her arm linked with his, as they make their way down the sidewalk. Zberka, she tells him, a Serbian word what mean confusion. Da, what is confusion of too many thing? Then blackness, but her voice. You want I should read your future? He cradled the receiver and closed his eyes, trying without success.